1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in The Times – I'm Matt Chorley. Come and see us live in a recording of two special podcasts. We'll be in Liverpool on September the 23rd, where we'll be asking, have we reached peak Corbyn? And then on Monday, October the 1st, we'll be in Birmingham asking, can the Tories survive and should they? For tickets, time subscribers can go to mytimesplus.co.uk. Now, onto this week's episode, also from a Times Plus event, when the Times senior political correspondent and Red Box regular Lucy Fisher sat down with Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement, to discuss his new book, How Britain Really Works, an in-depth look at the challenges facing the UK. Getting to grips with Britain is harder than ever. A nation that chose Brexit which rejects immigration but is dependent on it, is getting older but less healthy, is more demanding of public services but less willing to pay for them and is tired of intervention abroad but wants to remain a global authority. So let us now join Lucy and Stig as they try to explain how Britain really works. What
3: you see when you start thinking about it and going into the various rabbit holes that you end up down is that nothing really is planned properly in this country. We are here because of a series of accidents and uh, decisions and partially held decisions that's led us to a place which is a bit of a mess. Mm -hmm. Um, And once you start unpicking that, um, you probably need to do that to fully understand what it is to be British and what, what it is to be in Britain.
4: I mean, I think that's a very interesting thing you you bring out in in your book. We don't have a written constitution, uh, of course, and so many of our institutions have just been a a series of additions and adaptations, uh, and you talk about some of the difficulties they now find themselves in. I really enjoyed your chapter on the NHS, which starts with this wonderful double-header anecdote of how your wife's life was saved uh, after the birth of your son and how grateful you were for that, but then how the next day you returned to the hospital to find her surrounded by bloody rags. No one had cleared them up. You know, yeah. also talking to the sort of the squalor of some parts of the health service. I mean, what, what's what's your prognosis of what's going on there?
3: Well, I think the great thing about the NHS, I mean, the NHS, and you have to preface this because it's true and it's important that people, I think, appreciate that, is it is one of the great creations in in modern times, really, in any country, in any era. It's amazing at curing you when you have a life-threatening illness. Uh, it's not amazing necessarily anymore at caring for you because of the nature of the pressures put upon it. And so the illustration that you know, my wife, uh, this is our second child and she gave birth. It was a pretty amazing birth. She came, I remember her looking me in the eye and saying, that was incredible. We've got this little boy. And then all of a sudden her eyes roll back in her head and she just fell to the ground and um, there was blood everywhere. It was like a a horror movie. And the midwife burst into tears, which isn't necessarily what you want to see. Uh, And she burst into tears. I burst into tears, helpfully. And then she ran to the wall, pressed this button. There was no alarm. But in about a minute, six doctors sort of poured into the room. And I was left literally holding the baby and pushed to the corner. And my wife's there. So eyes are all back in her head. She just lay there, and and there was moments when they were injecting and putting on drips, and there was moments where it it looked horrendous, you know, unspeakably horrendous. And then slowly she recuperated, and I gave her the baby, and he started feeding, and, and it sort of calmed down, and then they moved her to this ward. And so they'd saved her life unequivocally, and they'd saved her life with brilliance and speed. And then she was put on this ward, and she lay there, and I went home to see my daughter, and came back the next day. And and she was lying in this bed, as you said, surrounded by uh, baby wipes that she'd had to clean herself with. And no one had given her any water or food and no one had spoken to her. And she tried talking to people and and they'd not really had a response. And and she kind of came out of it because she's this amazing woman feeling strong that she'd looked after her baby. But it was pretty appalling. and, And you know, two of my grandparents died of MRSA in, in NHS hospitals. And again, their lives had been prolonged by the NHS. They'd, they'd been saved by it. But they'd also hadn't been cared for necessarily that well. And it made me think about the problems of continually funding a, an organisation like the NHS in the world we live in. And, and the person who, who set up um, the, the NHS, William Beveridge, his great idea was... When you look back to 1948... It was just all based on health insurance. Women particularly weren't really covered by the NHS. And there's a story of a doctor who says on the first day of the NHS, women were walking down the streets with prolapsed uteruses swinging because they'd never been treated at all before. And they had this moment where they could be be treated, which was... Uh, Joyous, But William Beveridge, who came up with the idea, said, in the end, what will happen is we've got this unhealthy population, we'll create the NHS, and the NHS will reduce demand on itself year after year after year. The country will get healthier, and so the NHS can get smaller. It'll start off at this size, and then in 20 years' time, it'll be a much smaller size, um, because everyone will be be healthier. And, of course, it's kind of understandable at one level of thinking, but it's the giant miscalculation around the NHS, because we've lived longer We get fatter, we get older, we live with more chronic ailments, and it ever, ever expanding the need. And so the NHS will never be able to meet the needs of the population. You could meet it better, and what happened under Tony Blair, when they chucked lots of money at it, it got better. But there's an argument that no matter how much money you find to divert it, maybe it's 10 billion quid, maybe it's 30 billion quid, uh, which is money that is broadly achievable if you made certain sacrifices, there will come a point where the demand will outstrip the supply. And so a fundamental question needs to be asked, what sort of thing do we expect our NHS to do? What are we willing to pay for it? What are we willing to have excluded from it? How are we willing to support it? And they're all interesting questions to me, but they're not questions that a politician is realistically that willing to answer because they're not judged by the NHS's performance in 30 years' time. They're judged by the NHS's performance in a year's time. What can they... How can they plaster over some of the mistakes? So the NHS in some ways symbolises an inherent problem we have in this country, that we have to look 30 years ahead, but our political system, as you know better than anyone, is based at best five years ahead, Mm -hmm. probably a year ahead, sometimes 24 hours ahead. And that gradual telescoping of the timescale means big structural change doesn't happen very much. And, And I think the NHS is a really good example uh, of that and there's an argument that it needs to be taken out of the political cycle of five years because at the minute we're going to be having this conversation in a year's time yeah. and two years time and three years time and if, 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 if the NHS has a winter crisis every winter it's not a crisis anymore it's just winter <laughs> yes.
4: um,
3: And and I think that's what we've ended up with in uh, in, in this country
4: can I ask you a bit about education? Because that's, that seemed, really struck me as another kind of area in which you felt very passionate. I think there were some areas you talk about where you're sort of more neutral um, and ambivalent. But on education, take a really fascinating tour around some of the best systems in China, Japan, Korea, I think Finland. you come up with your manifesto. What, will you tell the audience a bit about that and the best parts of other, uh, other countries' approaches you liked?
3: Yeah, I And mean, again, the education system is one which has been built up accidentally, uh, over a period of 50 or 60, 70 years, you know, in 1944, Rab Butler was asked by Churchill to develop something, provided he didn't really affect too much of the vested interest. So public schools remained, church schools remained, and they created the tripartite system, which was secondary moderns, grammar schools, and technical colleges, the latter of which no one really ever seems to have bothered with. Uh, and then grammar schools and, and secondary moderns set up this uh, essential unfairness. And I, I feel a bit about grammar schools. I do totally understand, you know, I went to a grammar school and an independent school. My parents both went to grammar schools and they were working class kids who did better because they went to grammar schools. So I totally understand there's an argument for social mobility for individuals. Lots of people have benefited from going to, to grammar schools. But it's obvious, it seems to me, that it's invidious as a policy overall for a nation. Because what grammar schools do is they pick a random year. There's no evidence to suggest 11 is a good time to, to test for aptitude. And they say to some people, you're in. And they say to some people, you're out. And the people who go to grammar schools, they get better teachers. They tend to be more affluent because middle class people can afford to pay tuition fees. They tend to leech all the good teachers in an area into them, which co- which costs uh, state schools around them. So state schools near grammar schools perform worse than state schools away from grammar schools. And it's based on an, on a principle that at 11, we can judge a person's academic worth and, and judge what their future will be. And that seems to me to be unproven by any evidence and damaging. And I talked to this woman who I quote in the book called Chris, who ended up doing a master's at Loughborough University, which is where I met her. But when she was 10, she failed the 11 plus and she lived in a village. And she said, um, at the end of her road, everyone walked down the road to school and the people who passed the 11 plus turned right and the people who failed the 11 plus turned left to go to the secondary model. And she felt the whole eyes of the village were on her as a failure. Now I'm sure they weren't. I'm sure no one ever thought about it. But that failure lived with her entire life. And so we've ended up with a, 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 an education system that started out on, on something that was unfair and based on scant evidence. And what have we done? The classic British thing. We've just added stuff to it and then taken a bit away and added a bit more. So we've got free schools and academies and faith schools. Um, and we have council run schools and then we have the private sector as well. And yet again, if you were to start from scratch and say, how should we educate our children in this country? You wouldn't come up with this system in a, ever. I mean, uh, Of course you wouldn't, and and no one would even expect you to to do that. But that's the system we've got, and the next minister for education will come in and change something or tinker around the edges, but no one will fundamentally shift it. Finland did do that, as it happens. Everyone who, who cares about education moans on about Finland, because in 1980 they said, we're going to start from scratch, we're going to get rid of private schools, we're going to comprehensively educate our entire child population until the age of 15, and then allow them to choose vocational or academic studies and we're going to then have an, an exam at the end at 18 and we're going to restrict how we do that at the beginning and then we're going to abandon any Ofsted, any inspections, we're going to trust teachers, we're going to make sure that to be a teacher in Finland you have to do five years at university, you have to do an MA, you have to do a dissertation on pedagogic subjects, you have to be able to be the best qualified person in your year to become a teacher. We don't value teachers in this country the way that we value doctors. And when you pause to think about that, that is crazy, because teachers are, are, you may never need a doctor for the first 20 years of your life. You will certainly need a teacher who can help you out. And when you compare all these different countries in this career in Singapore, who have pretty harsh attitudes towards education, which I don't think they should necessarily copy, but they say at the very beginning, whatever, however else they manage it, teachers should be the best paid, cleverest graduates. And in this country we say teachers should do whatever they can and we'll pay them very badly a third of them will leave between uh, before five years uh, and then we hope that the result will be acceptable but that seems to me to be crazy and if you look at pisa schools these international schools you hear about every three years we're top five economy in the world and we come 20th 21st 22nd in comparisons to other countries we were resolutely mediocre because in the end, we've never valued education very much in the country. So everywhere we wander around when we think about things to do with Britain, we come up against these structural inequalities that in other countries, I think, would cause systemic change. But they don't seem to in this country.
4: To my mind, one of the most striking um, statistics in your book was that half uh, of people in relative poverty in the UK are actually in work. Um, I mean, that really, to me, speaks to a system that isn't working. And that's one of the great... great,
3: And I do kind of think the Tories are slightly to blame for this, in that if you fetishise employment, full employment, as an end in itself, you miss out on the true function of employment, which is to give someone a viable and dignified life. Uh, And, of course, lots of people are in work now, but lots of people don't earn enough... To live. Even the system of tax credits is kind of weird. We accept that companies won't pay people enough to live on, so we expect that to be Mm subsidised. But that's a very odd way of expecting companies to be. They can get away with paying little and then the state will somehow step in to to make them pay something more. And I I do think Keane said that if you look after employment, the economy will take care of itself. But that's not true in 2018 and 2017. If you live in a country with with, part-time work and irregular work and zero hours contract, lots of people will tick an employment statistic, but they won't tick a, do they live happily and in a satisfied fashion? And if we look around this city now, um, if you look out out of the window, there'll be lots of people who are being priced out for property reasons. They'll never be able to buy a place here uh, and they're not earning enough to enable them to, to live happily. And I kind of feel, I'm not sure that will change anything, but, At some point, it will have to Mm -hmm. because at some point, we're not going to have any teachers living in London because they won't be able to afford to buy a house and have a family, you won't have any doctors. I used to come into work to write this book very early in the morning. I used to leave at five in the morning and it's quite a solitary experience getting on a train or a bus at five in the morning and you are just confronted by a whole economy of people, normally with dark skins, normally with foreign accents, who are holding everything together, their, 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 their nurses or their cleaners or they're people doing night shifts somewhere, and you you meet them all as you come into work at, at five in the morning. But how what how much of a fulfilling employment life are they facing? And are they in employment? Yes, they are. So when we look at employment rates, we tick a box. Mm-hmm. But do they have a fulfilled working life that gives them what, what they should do? I think the answer must be no to that.
2: You're listening to The Red Box Podcast with Lucy Fisher speaking to Stig Abel. There'll be more from their chats after this short break.
4: No secret in your book of your remainer uh, inclinations, and I, I just wondered how. Uh,
0: yeah. Presumably, you ready to pop the question? The jewelers at Bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door.
1: Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
4: You're not best pleased about Brexit or where we are with it, but how significant do you think it's going to be? How much of an impact do you think it will have on the country, both in the short term and the sort of medium to longer term?
3: Are People here? People who vote Remain or Brexit, this is quite a Remain crowd. Remain crowd, do I think? Shout if you yeah, remain. Remain? <laughs> yeah, okay.
4: Um, Anyone Brexit?
3: Do feel free. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, okay. okay. That's good, okay as good. well. Here's a, so my feeling on, on Brexit is I totally understand the thinking behind people who, who voted Brexit. I can see the sovereignty argument uh, very clearly. It seems to me that you must be entitled to say we want to be able to vote on everything that happens to our country and certain this big areas like immigration are taken away from that voting process. That doesn't feel quite right. I understand that argument. Um, my, my criticism of Brexit from the very beginning and it just feels like it's just being endlessly recycled like some sort of purgatorial moments in front of us is it was a gamble when the people who were involved in pushing it didn't know what they really were arguing for, they didn't know how to deliver it, and so the chances of it being deliverable were always going to be very, very small indeed. So can you imagine a world where Brexit is delivered brilliantly and it doesn't harm Britain? Yes, but that's an imaginary world with the way that we're going about it. Um, And and so to me, it's a simple cost-benefit analysis. It will take a lot of money, it will take a lot of time and effort and the opportunity cost of Brexit is the thing that kills me the most. When you see today messing around with these amendments in Parliament which have just been fudged again and kicked on to another three months and we kicked on again in three months time, the millions of hours spent drafting proposals, the the time we should be thinking about, should we be having an, uh, an education system that's revamped from the ground up? Should we be reconfiguring what we think about national health? Should we be reconfiguring what we think about the role of employment in this country with automation 10 years away, which could take 30% of the jobs out of the market? Should we be spending our efforts collectively thinking about those problems versus trying to establish some mechanism to deliver us out of a system with which we're completely linked almost inextricably, because 52% of people decided that was a good idea. Uh, And any cost-benefit analysis, dispassionately, that doesn't feel like it's a particularly smart move. And I I do understand the voting for for it. I mean, the, the, the metaphor I use in the book is, it's like buying a house without seeing it, without having a survey, without in any way knowing what it looks like. And No one would do that in their right mind, unless they felt they lived at the lowest part of where they're ever gonna reach. They feel that their lives are so restricted, their possibilities are so reduced that why wouldn't they punt and look for change? And yes, you could end up in a flat that has no view, that is cramped uh, and sort of reeks of of failure, Uh, but there's a small chance you might get something better. And so I think punting on change, the Americans did it with Trump, I think Britain did it with Brexit. I understand punting for change, I really, really do. We've just talked about it. But dispassionately saying we had any clue of how to deliver it, and the cost of therefore getting to wherever we'll get to in two years' time or three years' time or five years' time, or however long this fast will continue, I just think was was always going to be a, a risk too great.
4: Do you, think, um, do you think the public were lied to via some parts of the media? Do you think fake news was, was at play or, or, or not? Uh,
3: Britain, interestingly, there isn't much of a fake news phenomenon in Britain because we've kind of incorporated it into how we deal with, with information generally. So we have a very, very hyper-partisan media. You know, in this building, there's the Sun, there's the, the Mail, there's the Express, and then there's the Telegraph and the Guardian and the Mirror. And so there's lots of people hectoring and arguing. I think there's lots of passion and I think in some respects newspapers are, are right to, to reflect the views of their, their readers and so, if there is a passionate, nostalgic view for a Britain that probably never existed or a, a view about sovereignty or a view about immigration, newspapers will reflect and hammer it. I, I think it was run by journalists in the sense that Boris Johnson and Michael Gove are journalists and what do we know about journalists, they're not very good at working things out. They, they, how dare they're, you? Yeah. They're <laughs> terrible with money.
4: Sounds they, about right. They
3: yeah. chase a big story at all costs. Uh, and that's kind of what Brexit is. I can see that it was exciting. They thought, we'll do, we'll change something. We'll, we'll, what story that will be coming out of the European Union? Imagine the excitement. Uh, and, of course, they're then left with the boring stuff that, that that grown-ups have to think about, which is how do we make it all work? How will the plumbing work? How will... It all comes. So I, I think the press banged a drum, but they've been do, they do that anyway uh, in this country, and I've seen it firsthand at the sun. Um, I think people were promised something that wasn't delivered. So I kind of blame... I, you go back to David Cameron. I kind of blame him to begin with because um, he wanted to solve a Tory party problem. He'd been the luckiest politician perhaps ever in Britain. You know, he'd, be, he'd lucked out the Scottish referendum. He'd lucked out against... Ed Miliband, he was then facing Corbyn, which he felt he could win. He just felt he could win anything. So he said, oh, let's have a referendum. And you know, in 1979, when they had the Scottish devolution referendum, they put in a, a threshold. They said 60% of the electorate have to vote yes for this to happen. And then in 1979, there was a yes vote, but it wasn't 60%. So nothing happened until Blair came along in 97. Why did Cameron not put a threshold into the Brexit vote? Because the Jonathan Coe, the novelist, said this thing, which to me, I think is true. 52.48 means don't know. By any rational assessment of what 52.48 means, and we have to turn it from don't know into yes, we definitely want this thing, and anyone who disagrees with that is wrong. That is an impossible process, and because it was built in to have this uncertainty allowed, you know, if it had been 50.1 to 49.9, we'd be in the same situation. So we got no certainty in the result, and then we're asked to create certainty post hoc. Um, and I think we live in a in a world where everyone is certain about everything, and very few things in life are completely straightforward. And a binary referendum is a pretty good metaphor for that. There are very few things in life which a yes/no answer is actually a good answer. The other answer will be yes, but what about this? And have you thought about that? Or no, but I'm not sure about that. And of course, we absolutely collapsed everything into a binary question.
4: I just want to ask you a bit more about the media given your uh, your front front uh, ringside seat, hmm. uh, both at the regulator and then at the sun um, it's It's one of the most um, emotional chapters in the book, it seems to me, I think because you've been so kind of personally uh, involved in it for a big part of your career, um, it seemed a rather bleak assessment of, of the direction in which the industry is traveling
3: yeah, uh, It probably is. I mean, this, the book sounded really pessimistic and depressing. Um, I mean, I, I did the Leveson Inquiry. I probably had a breakdown, actually, uh, without really realising it. In when I was, because I did this, so I, I I was working at the Press Complaints Commission. It got caught up in the mess that was phone hacking. You know, a mess that was partially caused um, to a large extent by the News of the World, which was owned by this company. Um, and I um, and I saw it firsthand, and the PCC got sucked into it, and eventually. Dismantled, and I kind of felt responsible for the people who worked for me there who did a good job and what they are asked to do, and then they were being blamed for things that were outside their control. Uh, so I think I probably had a, a small breakdown without out-realising it. Um, I remember my wife booked me uh, a psychiatrist appointment, and I, I, I missed it because I lost my wallet. <laughs> uh, and I think, I think when you're losing your wallet, and that's the reason you're not going for a psychiatrist appointment, there's probably a signal saying things have got a bit on top of you and you should... Um, you should have a think. Um, uh, and so while I did the Leveson Inquiry, and the thing about the Leveson Inquiry was it was pretty helpful as a process, it seems to me, because in this building, and you won't say this, uh, Lucy, but I'll say it on your behalf, editors are hugely self-important people. Uh, they really, 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 uh, they love to give it and they hate receiving it. Uh, they're not actually important people, they're self-important people, and there's a, a crucial distinction there. Um, <laughs> I think. And and, and for years and years and years, editors in this country had this amazing power because there was a limited amount of means for people to get their news, really up until the last 10 years, 10, 15 years. If you wanted information, you had to buy a newspaper or listen to the radio or watch one of the news programmes on television. So it was a monopoly. And it meant they were hugely powerful, which meant they felt they were hugely powerful, which meant they often did things that they shouldn't do. And they sometimes were caught out on that but very often not and so the Leveson process where you took these bashful figures and placed them into the hot lights of a courtroom was actually pretty healthy at one level because they weren't used to having people saying why did you do that no you answer me don't ask me a question I'm asking you a question but we ended up with a, a classic British mess at the end of it which is oh we don't really know how to regulate the press and anyway the internet's coming along and um, actually the whole thing is a is a is impossible to deal with which Leveson I think it was a million words of that Leveson report, but the subtext was that, really. Uh, I'll, we'll try and, and, and if I may
4: say you point out in the book that only a tiny proportion dealt with the internet at all.
3: Yes, I think it was... I mean, so there's various mean-spirited analysis. Some say like 329 words of yeah. media, but it's not quite that. There's, there's more of it. But yeah, exactly right. And even now, half the news organisations in this country have no regulation at all, and nothing has affected them. You know, the FT, the independent... Um, Aren't regulated uh, at all. The standard's not regulated. Uh, The Guardian is not regulated. Um, So it's a a real mess. And the problem the industry, the newspaper industry, we're in this amazing building, uh, which is a, a testament to a belief in an industry which is important. But at the minute, the economic foundations for it are crumbling. Around us, and, and some people won't care and people who've been mistreated by tabloids won't care and they'll say it serves, it serves you right. But ultimately the newspapers in this country together with the broadcast media have, and they have on occasion and sometimes on repeated occasions been able to ask difficult questions, being able to, to prompt change in the government. We've seen some big stories uh, recently. There is no real economic basis for that on a wide scale. So the Times at the minute is doing very well because it has a select number of subscribers who believe in news that's written well, that's properly sourced. And that's great, but it's not a vast market. It's a niche market. The idea of mass journalism is based on funding for advertising. That advertising left to go onto the internet and everyone assumed on well, newspaper internet will go on the internet and they'll get all the advertising money. That hasn't happened. Of all of all Last year, of all the new advertising money that was spent on digital, more than 90% went to Facebook and Google. So all of this extra money that sloshes around the place that could fund journalism funds Facebook and Google. And they don't spend any money on making anything. They don't do anything. They just take stuff that other people have made, which is a brilliant model for them because their overheads are small, their revenues are huge, and they're growing. And. I don't know how that ends realistically for mass market journalism, for local journalism. Local journalism used to be hugely profitable, vibrant heart of a community, and local newspapers are now dying out all across the country. And if someone said to you, today, would you recommend a career in journalism? You'd have to think very, very carefully about saying yes, because it's not clear how in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, that will be fundable. Uh, And so I think that is a a big problem. And the the BBC has a problem because although it has guaranteed funding for the license fee, its audience is getting older and older and older. Kids watch YouTube, uh, which again is an aggregation. If you look at all the big companies that make a lot of money, apart from Apple, they don't make stuff. They just channel stuff. And if you just channel stuff, you're never actually involved in the difficult bits, the bits which take investment and revenue. So Amazon, it's a distributor. Now wants to make a few things but ultimately that's where it makes it it makes its money netflix is a distributor google facebook twitter all of these things don't do stuff they channel stuff and if no one's doing it no one's making it we're all going to to lose out and you end up with uh, therefore with a with a philosophy of journalism which is based on the instant click which is based on nonsense stuff stolen from someone else who's stealing from you and if if i say this in the book if if we use clicking as a metric for journalism, we're gonna have more stories about Kim Kardashian's knees and fewer stories about the behavior of local councils. And that's just the world. It's not snobbishness to say, that's just life. But we lose collectively. There's nothing wrong with stories about Kim Kardashian's knees, God bless them. (laughs) Uh, But we will lose if if there's, there's not other things as well.
4: Mm-hmm. This is a subject that you say in your book you didn't want to really bring up, but you felt you had to, and that's political correctness. Mm. And um, it's quite interesting, you, you come down very firmly on the side of political correctness. I think you call it a, a tax we pay um, to avoid prejudice and to live in a more civilized society. And I just thought that was interesting, particularly given your time you know, at the helm and the high echelons of the sun. I, I spent time covering um, to UKIP and seen uh, travel around the country and talk to a lot of people for whom political correctness is highly alienating. They feel it stifles and silences people like them. It's their middle-class, self-appointed betters. Um, and I just wondered what you made of that point of view. And and, and and your former Sun readers, who I don't think are big fans of political correctness. No,
3: either. I mean, political correctness, um, I use the term because everybody uses it. And the, the point I make about taxes is that if you look to, compared to the 70s when... Um, look at what was common discourse in in the country in terms of jokes about um pakistani families or about gay people or about there was a kind of common discourse that was accepted and that's no longer accepted now to me there's huge downsides to this and i I talk about in the book you know this fear of being accused of being racist which stifles some political debate is absolutely the case and and actually in the last six months when i finished the book that identity politics that fear of being on the wrong side of the argument, it's got more and more potentially corrosive. But I think if you look at it as a whole, is it good that we live in a country that is broadly more tolerant of minorities than it was 20 years ago? Is it good that people don't make slitty-eyed jokes about people from um, the Far East? Is it good that um, it's not considered acceptable to sort of grab a, a woman by the bum and say something? I think that's, that's, it must, there must be, you can't lose sight of the advantages of discourse being cleaned up slightly. You know, when I was on LBC, I used to do phone-ins quite often on sexual harassment. Um, and I was always amazed by it. I mean, what do I know about, about this? I'm a, I'm a big lump of a man. but So I used to say, what are your stories? My wife actually texted in with the story. I said, Can you tell me your stories of what it is to be uh, a woman in, in modern Britain. And my wife texted in which was weird because she could have just told me this <laughs> at home. <laughs> uh, but she hadn't told me. It was interesting. So she was walking down the street and some bloke stuck his head out of the car and said what he wanted to do to her. And then when she ignored him, he shouted abuse at her and walked off. And that had happened to her a week before and she hadn't mentioned it to me. And I said, why have you not mentioned it to me? She goes, well, it's just normal. It's just what, more, it's just what life is like. You, you know, it happens. And I, I, I'm, I'm strong. I don't mind. I can shrug it off. It doesn't bother me. And I thought, well, it really bothers me. And so that's why I started thinking of this notion of it's easy to condemn political correctness because um, it seems like it's worthy and it's connected to all sorts of pretty unsavoury things like virtue signalling and people trying to pretend to be things that they're not. So I'm not discounting all of those things. But I think in the end, do we want a discourse that is elevated slightly? Is that better than a discourse that is completely unconstrained where people uh, can have things said about them without with impunity. And so I sort of settle on the, the second side. One of the interesting things is the Times are very involved in this, sort of the transgender debate. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of l- very liberal women who are very uncomfortable where the transgender debate has got to. And, and so for example, as a man, I feel very comfortable in saying, I don't mind whatever people want to identify themselves as, good luck to them. you know. I think provided you're happy and you're trying to be happy and you're not harming anyone, I just think good luck to people. And I, I, I used to criticise in LBC the established church, which seems to ignore that very basic aspect of humanity. If someone is pursuing happiness at the cost of no one else, then they should be supported, And that seems to me to be a fairly good rule in life. But I say that as a bloke, and so I don't have to um, experience views of uh, about how uh, it is to be a woman and then have people who were born in another uh, gender and then have changed it. All of that's completely foreign to me. And so I was very at one point, I'll oh, just, just let everyone do what they like. Um, but I do understand that there are countervailing arguments about representation and, and, and how that works. And so it's a, it's a complicated situation. I don't pretend to have the answers, but I do think we can say with some certainty, it's better to live in a place where it's wrong to talk in a demeaning fashion about someone based on things outside of their control. Mm-hmm. And I think the positive side of political correctness is that.
4: Well, I think you make a compelling argument. And I must say, um, there were so many counterintuitive facts in your book, but, but you just reminded me with your kind of very sensitive discussion of the trans debate, um, one fact sprung to mind, which is that four times the number of people who go to the NHS transgender clinic are born women rather than people who are born men. And that's interesting. I, I thought that the, the, the statistics were in the other direction. I, forgot,
3: I got that from uh, a friend of mine, Jenny Kleeman, who I do the Sky Papers thing with, and lots of people didn't, even want that, didn't let her write that story because it looked like she was making a judgment about trans people because the argument is four times as many women as men then maybe there are psychological reasons, maybe there are societal reasons where women as they enter puberty feel constrained about where they, will, where they are so they elect to uh, go down the path of, of gender reassignment. Now that may or may not be true but it seems to be interesting and important to discuss and you must be able to discuss these things with clean mm-hmm. hands. You, it, that's the downside of political correctness, where you're not even allowed to f- frame the debate.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And she wasn't allowed to write about that. And I, I feel that it's exactly that sort of thing, conversation we should have, because what are, no one really knows the neurological reasons why people are born in the wrong gender. So there must be other factors. It doesn't mean they're not real. I mean, one of the things I come back to a lot in this is that we, we as a country, we're very comfortable with things that are, um, you know, if you break your leg, it's real. Mm-hmm. And we understand that. But things like mental health issues or gender issues, then they happen in the head. But that doesn't mean they're any less real. They mm-hmm. are just, they're just real in a different, different plane. And I, I think that's one of the changes we're having as a society. We're starting to think of those things that are on different planes of reality. And that's probably a healthy thing as well.
4: Yeah. Well, I think you don't shirk um, those sort of tricky to talk about subjects. And I think you're also remarkably honest... Um, about some of the own, your, you know, your own life, lots of kind of very moving and funny anecdotes. Um, and I particularly loved a bit where you talk about a wobble with anxiety that you had and the sort of the redemptive power of literature. You talk about how you read P.G. Woodhouse. Yeah, um,
3: I still do. Good. Uh, no, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, my 20s, I, I woke up, I used to wake up shaking, like really very strongly shaking, like my whole body was shaking and I couldn't really... I thought I had some sort of fever, but I didn't have a fever. Um, and the scary thing about anxiety, which I think lots of people have to a greater or lesser extent, is you feel that you're completely losing control. And when you hurt yourself, you can feel confident that it'll be fixed. If you're unmoored from reality in your brain and, your, and you feel your brain is letting you down, you feel terrified uh, because it's the one thing that you can control, your thought processes. Uh, and that happened to me for a, you know, a year really, I think, and it was terrifying. Um, and one of the things that did get me through it, which again, why I've ended up writing a book, and at the end of each chapter, I've I've given books, novels to read, rather than a bibliography, because I think there is something about fiction. P.G. Woodhouse is particularly the case, where there's a structure, there's a beginning, the middle, and the end, so if you're becoming unmoored from the world, if you feel that you're losing control, a book presents a very neat encapsulation of control. It has a structure. It has a definable shape. Uh, Jane Austen talks about the telltale compression of pages before you get to the end. You know the end is coming because you can physically see it. So it it, it becomes a microcosm of control, which when you're wobbling a bit, that becomes very, very useful. Uh, And so I found books generally, one of the reasons that I think I wanted to write one is that books generally can give that illusion of security in a world where that's not necessarily guaranteed and there's one statistic I just want to mention because it keeps bothering me this. There's a statistic that goes around, the Prime Minister uses this, that one in four people will have mental health problems and this is not me, a proper journalist, Tom Chivers, I think, who worked for BuzzFeed, investigated that. Where does that one in four statistic come from? Because you hear it all the time, mental health charities use it. And no one can find out where it comes from. There is one report 10 years ago, which said in one area, one in four people reported mental health difficulties in a year. And it's become known, as it's become this sort of Zombie statistic, one in four people. Well, actually, if you think about it, of course it's more than one in four people have some degree of mental unrest and inner health during the course of their lifetime. It would be extraordinary if three quarters of the people in a country or the world sailed through 70 years of existence without ever having mental disquiet. But we've settled on one in four as a way of demonstrating scale. We've said, no, it's one in four. It's obviously more than than one in four. And I just think it's an interesting statistic that, you know, the prime. I was looking at a speech from the Prime Minister and she said, one in four people will have mental health problems during their lifetime. Uh, And it's far more than that, I think. And although pathologisation isn't always uh, the best thing in the world, it's again a good thing. You know, we're talking about the optimism of Britain. We are a more tolerant country than we were 20 years ago. We are a more open country. If you look at any, you know, abortion, leaving aside Northern Ireland, you know, a woman's right to choose was... 20% 20% of people favoured it in the 60s and now 80% mm-hmm. do. Support for gay marriage, 20%, gone up to 80%. Um, all sorts of issues where we've become more enlightened, more rational and more thoughtful do exist. So for all the misery that I paint at gratuitous length, there are some there are some gleams of hope, I think, as well.
4: Well, with that, um, can we give him a round of applause? So thank you. Thank you.
2: And that's all we've got time for on this week's Red Box podcast. Join us next week when we'll be playing a game of political trivia, testing the minds of Patrick Kidd, the Times sketch writer and diarist, Esther Weber, the Red Box reporter, and Mark Mason, author and all round quiz man. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your Android device and sign up to the Red Box morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox, ready for when it returns in September. But for now, my thanks to Lucy Fisher and Stig Abel, and for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye.